I believe that, um, if you haven't been here for the study, I believe that God inspired his word and preserved it. Then God spoke to us in his word and we can just accept it. Amen? When you look at your New Testament, even the way that your New Testament is laid out, it is, it is for us to understand what's going on in the world. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Jewish Gospels, and they are the historical books. The next, that, that's the history of this transition between the law and Jesus Christ. It's the history of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, then when you get to the book of Acts, you have the history of the church written the first 30 years of the history of the church. Then you have the church in action. You have the Apostle Paul writing to the churches, starting in the book of Romans, ending up in Philemon, and he gives us all of the information about how a church is supposed to function. And then you get to the general epistles. The general epistles are written for us, but they're not written directly to us. Those general epistles are for people in tribulation. And you'll see that as you read it, each and every one of those, they talk about trouble and how to respond in trouble. There's a lot of Jewish context. So when these people are going through the tribulation period, they're going to know how to stand. Amen? The 12 tribes scattered abroad in the book of James. That's who the book of James is addressed to. Well, they are going to be the 12 tribes. They're going to be identified as the 12 tribes when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. The temple is going to be in existence. Sacrifices are going to be, they're going to be practiced while they are practicing their Christianity. That's why when you get to the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is better than the sacrifices. We have an enduring sacrifice, and that's Jesus Christ. So those epistles, those, those general epistles, an epistle is a letter, those general epistles are written specifically for people that are going through the tribulation period. Now, in our day, people get really mad. Like, if I say that at a preacher's conference, people get really mad. Are you telling me Hebrews isn't for me? That's not what I said. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Amen? Amen? Hebrews is profitable for each and every one of us. But how many Hebrews do we have here? You need to know whose mail you're reading. It is very simple. This is not complicated stuff. God even laid out the Bible for us in order so that we can understand this stuff. Well, then what is the book of Revelation? When you get to the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, you have the history of the next 2,000 years of the church. So it's real important that you see that. The book of Revelation is divided up into three sections. We find that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's the past, chapter 1. And the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the churches, seven churches. And the things which shall be, Hereafter, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, the things which shall be hereafter, look at what it says in chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, it's a pretty simple division, isn't it? You see it right there. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things to come, or which I will show thee things which must be, what's it say? Hereafter and the things which shall be hereafter. It's a very simple division. And that, that chapter 4 and verse 1, that ties right in with, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain. That's exactly what's going on. Chapter 4 and verse 1 is the rapture of all the believers. Now, 
If we go back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, uh, let's, let's not miss this. Who was the book of Revelation written to? Jesus Christ. It was actually given to, by the Father, given to Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him. This is for Jesus Christ. Who was the book of Revelation written to? Jesus Christ. And who is it for? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, I want everybody to do this. Everybody do this. Everybody, everybody participate. Ruth Rodney's not participating. Everyone? Okay, now do this. All right? If you have an ear, if you're Van Gogh, use your other hand. This, this is Van Gogh with glasses. You seen that? All right? That means... <laughs> that means that this book is written to you. Amen? Man, that's really important stuff. It is really important. Because what happens is, when you look at Revelation chapter 2, the other thing about this book, this is the only book of the Bible where there is a specific blessing promised to those that read it and keep it. And if you look at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. All right, now, when you get into these seven churches, they were literal historic churches. They all existed. And they are letters written by the Lord Jesus Christ to those churches. All right? So they were legitimate churches, and they all existed at the same time. They all came out of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a church planting church. So these other six came out of the church at Ephesus. So they were literal historic churches. But each of them also represents a period of church history. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21. Unto him, that's God the Father, be glory in, what's it say? The church by Christ Jesus. So God the Father would receive glory in the church by Jesus Christ, God the Son, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As I was reading through that, and, of course, the book of Ephesians is all about how to behave in the church, how to get along in the church. It's talking about the, how, how the church and the home are... You, you, can't even, you can't even tell many times when God is speaking about the church or the home. Why? Because the church is made up of homes. Right? We're all part of the church. The local New Testament church. And so as I was studying this, verse 21, "...unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages." What ages? Well, that's just poetic language. Really. Does it look like poetic language? Or does it look like God's going to receive glory by Christ Jesus in the church throughout all ages? It's pretty clear, isn't it? So what ages? Those ages are defined, they are identified for us specifically, clearly, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There's no doubt about it. Um, I've got a book... Uh, Let's study the Revelation, is what it's called. And when he gets to here, he says, these are not seven ages. They're not seven periods. Well, that's nice for somebody to, to determine that. But when you look at the actual language of them, they have to be these seven periods of church history. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time, but Ephesus, the name Ephesus means fully purposed. And the church that, that is the apostolic age. It's from the apostolic age to about, um, uh, let me... 
do this so I don't mess it up. It's the apostolic age until about 200 A.D., so from the apostles to about 200 A.D. The next period of church history is the, the Smyrna church. Smyrna has the word myrrh, and it means suffering. And this is, you know, myrrh is the, the, the spice that was used. It was brought to Jesus Christ at his birth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold for his kingship, frankincense uh, for his priesthood, and myrrh for his death. In the kingdom, according to Isaiah chapter 60, in the kingdom when they bring him gifts, they're going to bring him gold and frankincense. He's still the king, he's still the priest, but he only dies once. Amen? But this period is a time of, of tremendous suffering. Uh, there is no negative message given to the church at Smyrna. They're just suffering. And that period goes to about 325. In 325, you have Constantine is sitting on the throne, and that's when we have the rise of the Pergamus church. Pergamus means much marriage, and you have the marriage of church and state. That goes from 325 to 500. From 500 to 1,000, you have Thyatira. Thyatira means odor of affliction. And in that period, man, Christians are just crushed. It's a terrible time, but this is when the Roman Catholic Church is taking charge. 500 to 1,500 is called the Dark Ages. Uh, people started thinking that was too religious, so they called it the Middle Ages. And I think that, that it's so funny because the middle of what? It's the middle of God's timetable. It's hilarious, man. When people try to deny God, he just always finds a way to get the last word. Isn't that awesome? Amen. So you have that period, Thyatira is going to run until 1,000. From 1,000 to 1,500, that is the period that's the Sardis church. And Sardis means red ones. And these red ones, the, the, the Baptists in that period, believers in that period, were just persecuted horribly. Why? That's called the golden age of the popes. And in that period of time, Christians were just devastated. All right? Then you get to the Philadelphia period. In the Philadelphia period, God sets before them an open door. An open door. That's going to begin around 1500. Now, you know, that in 1517, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church, Wittenberg, Germany. And that begins what is called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Well, that's not why Philadelphia happened. That's not why the greatest period of missionary expansion in history happened. It happened in spite of the reformers. What happened was you had Gutenberg's Bible came out in the 1400s, the, the, the movable type printing press. After that, the Bible was able to be printed and mass produced. At the same time, in the early 1500s, a man named Erasmus finally compiles the Greek text and prints it. He didn't write it. He just printed it. So now a complete Greek text is available for all the scholars all over the world. And now we have Bibles being translated into vernacular translations, thousands of them all over the world. But the problem is most of those countries that had the Bible translated into their own language were still within marching distance of Rome. Rome hates the Bible. They hate it. William Tyndale, one of the early translators of the Bible, John Wycliffe would have been the earliest that, uh, that, that we, would be in popular notice, uh, into English. The, the Bible is actually translated into Gothic all the way back in 900. That's wild. I'm sorry, all the way back in 600. 
Um, but anyway, so you have Wycliffe. He translates the Bible in the 1200s, but it wasn't able to be mass-produced. It would cost a year's wages to get one copy of a Wycliffe Bible. So Tyndale, 1525, finishes the New Testament. 1535, finishes the Old, te- or finishes the Old Testament. He gets strangled and then hung. I mean, uh, strangled and then burned. The Catholics hate, they absolutely hate the Word of God. So what happens? Well, you have the defeat of the Spanish Armada. England controls the seas at that point. Then they start taking this new Bible that was translated in 1611. It goes with them everywhere around the world. 1492, our country, our our continent is supposedly discovered. And then people start coming here. Well, what happens is we know that Rhode Island is established. 1636, 1638, the First Baptist Church is established in Newport. Then uh, Roger Williams starts his 1639 in Providence. And that's the first time that liberty is anywhere in the world. 1652, 1651, 1652, you have John Clark getting the Rhode Island Charter from Charles II. So now there's liberty. But for the first time, there's a nation where the gospel can be preached, from which missionaries can be sent out, where there is complete religious liberty. From that time, God just opens up the missions, the, the, the mission field. People are saved by the millions and millions and millions. And let's look at it. Revelation chapter 3. Now, I know you guys have heard... All of that. Everything that I just said, you guys have heard that before. I hope that doesn't bore you too much, but some of you are new, and I wanted to catch everybody up on that. Now look at what it says. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. All right, so what is this talking about? Well, the church at Philadelphia, each of the names describes the period. Philadelphia means brotherly love. We all know that. And he says, these things say, and then, then the titles of Christ, each of these are titles of Christ, and these titles of Christ give the answer to the problem of the age. And so that's why I titled my article, The Bible, the Baptist Soul Authority Through the Ages, um, and Jesus Christ is the answer through each of these ages. But look at what it says about Jesus Christ. Here's his title. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, He that openeth, and no man shutteth. He's holy, and he's true. What's holy? His word. What's true? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus Christ is the word of God, and he is living truth, and they kept the word of God. The key of David. What's the key of David? Well, the key of David was the key that was used by Elkanah to open up the treasury. To open up the treasury. Well, where's our treasury? It's right here. It's right here. God gave them the key of David to understand the Bible and take it through the whole world. It's an amazing thing. So he sets before them an open door, and then he says in verse 8, I know thy works. Why would he set before them an open door? I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, that no man can shut it, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. A little strength. Why, Why just a little strength? Because his strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen. When I am weak, he is strong. They were relying on the Lord based on his word. And God set before them an open door. And look at what it says. And has kept my word. 
How did they keep his word? How did they do that? Well, it was at this period of time, remember, this period starts in 1500, Erasmus got the right text. Jerome had corrupted the old Latin with the Vulgate. Uh, Origen had destroyed the Greek with his text. But these people, they got the right text, they kept it, they printed it, they got it around the world. They kept his word, and because they kept his word, look at what it says. It says uh, in the middle of verse 8, Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. So here we understand something. We deny the name of Jesus when we don't keep his word. Remember the Bible says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We think that's swearing. Now, how many of you think it's wrong to swear with the Lord's name? Taking the Lord's name in vain, that commandment, it's not about how you speak about it, although that's included in it. It's about how you live it. If you take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you go out and you represent the Lord Jesus Christ as something that he is not, that is taking the Lord's name in vain. We misrepresent Jesus Christ when we tamper with his word. Why? Because he is the word. You understand what I'm saying there? It's very, very clear. They kept his word. They didn't deny his name. So for 400 years, they had an open door. Millions and millions and millions of people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to do a little parenthesis here and, and explain something that's, that's really important. When you read someone like Charles Spurgeon or a lot of the great Baptists and leaders of the 1800s, late 1700s and to, up to the late 1800s, many of them were what you would call a post-millennialist. That is that Jesus Christ would come at the end of the millennium. The concept is that we are going to bring in the kingdom and then Jesus Christ will return. All right? Now, you have to allegorize a lot of the Bible to believe that. So these godly men who believed every word of the Bible, how could they be persuaded of that system of doctrine? Well, the, the, the schools were controlled by the Protestants. The Protestants were very much influenced by John Calvin. John Calvin called his theology Reformed Augustinianism. Augustine was the father of the post-millennial system. So what these reformers did was they, they rejected, some of them rejected Roman Catholicism's, it's called soteriology, that's the gospel, that's the doctrine of salvation. They rejected a work salvation and started preaching salvation by grace. That's good, right? But they didn't reject Rome's eschatology, which is the doctrine of end things or end times. They, they didn't reject that. They just carried it over. And then these are the ones who are writing the books that a lot of the old Baptists were reading. But here's why it was easy to accept that teaching. The idea is that we're going to win the world and make it a good place ready for Christ to return to. How are we doing? Seriously, how are we doing? How many of you think, how many of you believe that the world is a better place now than it was 50 years ago? Anybody? No. Well, then why did these guys believe that? Because for them, the world was a better place than it was 50 years before. They were in the Philadelphia period. So, and this is one of the reasons why we have to be careful 
about interpreting the scriptures anecdotally. Let me tell you what this passage means to me. Let me tell you how this passage, you know, what, what it means to me based on my experiences. No, we test our experiences by the word of God. We don't prove the word of God by our experiences. Amen? When we prove our theology by our experiences, then we become the authority. We become the test. And that's what these old Baptists were doing. But this great period, things were getting better. You've got to understand, the preacher would come to town and preach. Bars would close. They were laying off prison guards because the world was getting better. Why? Because God had set before them an open door. Amen? If only they had read the Scriptures. The Bible says the time would come when men would not endure sound doctrine. Is that what the Bible says? They missed that. That's why we've got to make sure that the Word of God is our authority, not our personal experiences. Okay, let's close that. Um, That was the end of the parenthesis. All right, now, so that's Philadelphia. How did Philadelphia end? How did we end up in Laodicea? Let's Let's read on. Chapter 3, look at verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I chasten. I'm sorry, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. How did we get to Laodicea from that open door of Philadelphia? How is it that God sets before them an open door, and yet here in verse 21, Jesus Christ, the door is closed, and Jesus Christ on the outside closing, knocking on it. What in the world happened? It is very simple. The answer to the problem of each age is given in the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ in Laodicea. The name Laodicea means rights of the people. And boy, is that where we are? Look at what it says. Jesus Christ to the church. Verse 14, unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans. Now, don't miss it. Unto the angel. You might have a footnote that says messenger or pastor. Now, I'm a pastor, and no one's ever accused me of being an angel. Does it say angel or does it say pastor? What's it say? Angel. So it's an angel. Okay, there you go. Um, that's a deep, complicated theological discussion there. So, unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans... Now, notice that right there. It's not the church in Laodicea. It's the church of the Laodiceans, right to the people. It's their church. Jesus Christ is on the outside. outside. How does that happen? Look at Jesus Christ's titles. 
These things saith the Amen. Do you know what Amen means? Let me tell me what it means when you say Amen. It's true. This is the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Sanctify them through thy truth. Finish the verse. Thy word is truth. So he's the truth. Do you know what the problem of this age was? They lost the truth. They lost the truth. It was at this period of time that all of a sudden you had the Hegelian dialectic was introduced. Now, who here does not know what the Hegelian dialectic is? Who here does know what it is? Y'all are afraid I'm going to make you say it. What this is is you have a thesis, which is your position. The opposite of that is the antithesis, the antithesis. Well, those two things can never be reconciled unless you have a synthesis, and that's what you bring together. His whole concept was that we would have dialogue, and through our dialogue with our enemies, we would come to common ground. Right? Well, the Bible says that somebody that's a heretic, we're supposed to mark them and avoid them, get rid of them, not sit down and have conversations with them. We're not supposed to do that. So the first thing that happened in this period was truth was rejected. And now we all know what Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? That's where we live. There are no longer any absolutes that was removed from our period through philosophy. That, that complete lack of truth was introduced into our Bible colleges, into our seminaries, into our educational system. And now you've got this whole thing where nobody has an actual authority other than themselves. And it's like they did in the book of Judges. In every man, there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Laodicea. That's the beginning of Laodicea. Historically, you can see it through philosophy. Then look at what it says. Uh, verse 14 again, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. We could take that, and, and there are many cross-references in the Bible where Jesus Christ is a faithful and true witness. How? He preserved His Word. He preserved His Word. So now we have an age where there are no absolutes. So Jesus Christ is the Amen. He's the truth. There is truth. Truth does exist. And He's also the faithful and true witness. He has preserved His Word. You can rest in it. You can trust it. You can believe it. Amen? Then look at what it says. Now, remember, all this is coincidence. This, these things can't define our age, can they? Look at what it says. Verse 14 again. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What is the other thing that influenced our thinking in this age? Evolution. Evolution. Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The Bible says, by Him all things consist. The Bible says He upholds all things with the word of His power. But we have a group of people in Christianity who are rejecting that truth today. When you look at what's called the emerging church movement in this Laodicean period, there are people that are saying you do not have to believe in a literal six-day creation to be a Christian. 
We can accept varying ideas on these things. That's crazy. We can't do it. So where do we end up? Laodicea. That's where we are. How does that happen, though? How do we get to the place where Jesus Christ is standing outside the church like this? Look, it's in the text. Verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. So now we have lukewarm Christians. Lukewarm. The lukewarmness in this passage, and you understand what lukewarm is. It's not cold or hot. It's defined for us. We're supposed to be hot. We're supposed to be on fire for the Lord. Look, look at what it says in chapter 3 in verse um, 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. What's it say here? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Remember why Jesus Christ came. Two reasons. We're looking for the blessed hope, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who died that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. But that does not describe Christians in the Laodicean period. Do you know a good way to, to define lukewarmness? Self-satisfaction. I'm okay. Do you know the hardest people to teach? Are people that know everything. We live, we are in an, we live in an age where we are inundated with information. We know more about the Bible and about Christianity than people in just about any age. And yet we know less of the Bible than people in just about any age. In the 1300s, you had people walking through town quoting entire books of the Bible. Anybody here have a whole book of the Bible memorized? See, we live in an age where we know so much, but we have need of nothing. We don't need anything. We don't need it. Self-satisfaction. Look at what it says. Verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee. Out of my mouth. It's interesting that we live in an age where the Christianity makes God sick. Now I wonder I wonder if we think that's the other guy. 
we're Grace Baptist Church. Don't you know who we are? Yeah, we're those people who have need of nothing. Look what it says in verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How did this happen? How, how did we get to this place? Well, of course we understand the attack on the Bible, German higher critics, and then the defenders of the Bible were weak defenders. They didn't really know what they had. They were trying to bring the scholarship and that cult of scholarship in to the discussion of whether or not God preserved his word. And so what ended up happening was we had a watered-down Bible. Not only did we end up with a watered-down Bible, but because this German higher criticism, and remember what that means, that means German higher criticism just says you cannot know what portions of the Bible are true and what portions aren't. There are some things that you just can't know about it. God didn't preserve his word. That entered into what's called modernism. Modernism. Well, it sounds funny to us that modernism started in the 1800s. But that's what it was called. It was called modernism. Modernism brought about what was called um, neo-orthodoxy. And we find that today. This, this emerging church movement, all this stuff. that you, When you go to the Christian bookstore and you see these fancy books sitting there, and, and you, I can start naming guys, but if you haven't been in the Christian bookstore, it wouldn't matter. When you look at these guys... They're just neo-orthodox. They're going to say, let me tell you what the Bible means to me. And what the new orthodox position is, is that the Bible becomes the word of God when it speaks to you. It's not the word of God unless it speaks to you. Well, what happened was you had a group of people, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Methodists, who gathered together to fight against modernism. How many of you think that was a good thing? It was good to fight against modernism. And many, most of the old Baptists would not get together with them to do that. But there was a group that came along that united everyone. And they were called the fundamentalists. You had these, these books that came out, pamphlets, that were published that would define what the fundamentals are. And the purpose of the fundamentals was to say this is the lowest common denominator to which we must all agree in order to be called a Christian. So Christianity was dumbed down and many doctrines were considered non-essential. They're just not important. Has anyone heard of John R. Rice? Anyone heard of John R. Rice? John R. Rice... He was the founder and public editor of the Sword of the Lord magazine. Remember the Sword of the Lord? Anyone remember that? Well, John Rice was a Baptist. Um, but he was, before a Baptist, he was a fundamentalist. Now, let me say this. We're talking about the heritage of Grace Baptist Church. How many, who remembers what the name of the church was? Dodie, what was the name of our church? This church was founded as the Fundamental Baptist Church. Um, J. Frank Norris... He started the Temple Baptist Church in Detroit, and he had a paper called The Fundamentalist. Uh, J. Frank Norris started that church. This church was started out of that church. Now, what's wrong with being called a fundamentalist? 
Well, I'm going to read directly from, this is called Dr. Rice Goes to College. These are messages given in principal Christian colleges and seminaries. Sometimes we think that this, that this diminution of uh, doctrine is a new thing. That, you know, if we go back 50 years ago, everything was okay. The reason that we think that is because people pretty much dressed the same 50 years ago. And for many fundamentalists, because people change the way they dress, that's the big problem. John Rice would have been one of them. Now, Dr. Rice did a lot of good, man. So many people came to Christ through Dr. Rice's ministry. Probably millions. He did, he did so much good. But listen to this. this is, he's preaching in 1959. This is message delivered in chapel at Bob Jones University, November 30th. 1959. My dad might have been there. That's about the time that he was there. Listen to what he says. Uh, Psalm 119.63 says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Let us analyze that. Let us say I am a companion of all those who are saved and those who go by the Bible. God in the Bible. Now that's pretty good right there, right? But listen to what he says. That verse is very sweet to me because on, that author, on the authority of that verse, I decided not to just be a Baptist evangelist, though I am a Baptist, but to be an evangelist to all God's people. What in the world does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain it. Let me give you examples of people that it's okay to get together with in ministry, according to Dr. Rice. He says, um, born-again, Bible-believing Christians should cooperate when possible. Um, minor differences should not prevent cooperation of brotherly Christians. So now I'm going to give you the minor differences. Someone says, here's a fellow wrong on baptism. Well, that's too bad, but does he love Jesus? So baptism is a minor difference. So I guess those 50 million people who died in the dark ages for baptism, boy, if they'd only read Dr. Rice, they could have lived. Here's another one that doesn't matter. You say, this person talks in tongues. Well, personally, I prefer the English tongue. But a man who talks in tongues, is he saved? Yes. Does he believe the Bible? Yes. How many of you, that, this is kind of blowing your mind a little bit right here. Now, you've got to understand, every church that I preach in would revere this man. I mean revere him. Here's another one. Um, here's a post-millennialist. Shall we let him co cooperate in a revival campaign? No, a man can be saved yet be a post-millennialist. He's wrong, of course. But would you let this saved post-millennialist come to, in a revival campaign? Yes, if he makes no divisive issue about his post-millennialism. You've got to understand something. A post-millennialist and us, we disagree, with one -third of the, we disagree on one-third of the Bible. Now, how many of you think a third of the Bible might be an issue? You think... You say, Pastor, you just said Spurgeon was wrong on that. Yeah. And have you ever tried to read Spurgeon? 
on some of these passages. He did not. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. So here's the deal. Now we know better. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's sin. He goes on, Arminian, a guy that, that believes you can lose your salvation. So eternal security is a minor disagreement. You've got to under... Don't, I, I cannot overemphasize. This is where Laodicea came from. Why? Because you can't keep this and say these things. Dr. Rice wrote a book called Our God Breathed Book, the Bible, in which he says the New American Standard Bible is the best translation. Well, there's only about 30,000 differences between your King James Bible and the NASB. Is it intellectually possible, is it logically possible to make 30,000 insignificant changes in anything. It's just ridiculous. Where did we get to Laodicea? Where we thought we had it all figured out. We think we're okay. We think we're okay. Um, well, let me just address one last thing on that subject. Here was the idea. Jesus is coming. We need to get as many people saved as possible. Let's not divide over these minor things. Jesus is coming back. We need to get as many people saved as possible. How many of you ever heard somebody say something like that? He didn't come back yet. And so now, after 70 years of that mess, most of the guys going out of Baptist Bible College aren't even starting Baptist churches. We're going to start a fellowship, and we're going to call it the bridge. The bridge? What, are you going to play cards? We're, we're the lighthouse. Come, we're, we're just going to call our place Hope. Come and find Hope. Who are you? What are, is it a church? No, no, no. We're, we're, we're a fellowship. We don't want to use those old words. Husbands, loved your love your wives as Christ also loved and gave himself for it. This is a church. It's a church. So here's what happened. The concept of the truth was attacked. And we fought it by laying aside truth to defend some of the truth. Then the faithful and true witness was attacked. And we decided to use the world's tools to defend the faithful and true witness. And so the faithful and true witness was attacked. And then, God's chosen vehicle of expression, the thing for which he died, we decided, was a minor issue. The only people that can do that are lukewarm Self-satisfied satisfied people who have need of nothing. That's what this is. So I wonder tonight. Now I know it's been a long day. You guys are here. I'm glad that you're here. But how is your zeal for the Lord? How, how, 
what, what level would you describe your passion for his word, his person, his name, and his work? Look at the answer that Jesus Christ gives the people. And this is so interesting to me. Verse 18. Oh, let, let, let's look at verse 17 first. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wretched, miserable, poor. It's interesting. These people have need of nothing, and yet they're poor. Look at the Sardis church, chapter one, chapter 3. Um, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now look at this in verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The Bible makes it very clear. There's, there's another passage where it says, you're, you're poor, but you're rich. This is just the opposite. We have everything that we need. We've got to build more buildings because we have too much stuff. You know? That, that, that's us. And look at what he says here. We're blind. What is spiritual blindness? What is it? It's not being able to see the things of God. You can't see it. You can't know it. Now, just this tonight. Now, you guys are great. You're used to long preaching here. And I know you're tired, and I try not to take advantage of that too often. But do you realize that most churches that I go to preach in, Laura could tell you this. I have the record for the longest sermons in most of these churches that I go to. Because guys are trained now not to preach more than 20 or 25 minutes. How long is a football game? How long is a basketball game? How long is a golf match? It's like four days. <laughs> <laughs> Who watches? <laughs> really boring people. Now look. We live in an age where maybe 1% or 2% of the Christians in the world have someone actually teaching them the words of Scripture. You understand that? And that's why Jesus Christ is doing this. Because you can't read the true, preserved Word of God without understanding His love for the church. Then we're going to love the things that He loves. We're going to get passionate about the things for which He's passionate. But the thing that makes God sick is our lack of intensity. Laura says to me, do you love me? Eh. You're okay. 
Now, that's funny, right? Because we come in here and we sing songs to the Lord. And yet, He takes up so little of our thought process through the week. Why? Because honestly, we love the world too much. We love it too much. Me too. This Laodicea, we need to understand who this letter is written to. Remember we took the test? This is written to us. What are you truly passionate about? What are you thinking about? Look at what this says. Then we don't know that we're naked. We don't know that we're naked. Now, there's two concepts that are applied to that. Number one, and we know this all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, we must be clothed in Christ's righteousness. If you're not saved, you're naked. You are uncovered before God. Amen? If you are saved, put some clothes on. I preached in a church, an independent, Bible-believing, fundamental Baptist church. Where a trio got up and sang. Shown cleavage. These are Christians that don't know they're naked. Naked means uncovered. If you're covered, you're not naked. If you're uncovered, you're naked. Do you know what our age is? We live in an age where Christians don't know that. Go to the Christian bookstore and look at the album covers. Look at the immodest language on the covers of the books in the Christian bookstore. We don't know we're wretched. Years ago, when we first started trying to do some advertising, I went up to Northridge Church. Do you know what Northridge Church is? It's the church that started this church. It's not Temple Baptist Church anymore. They moved it out of the city because that wasn't convenient. Moved it into the suburbs because those poor black people, they don't need a church. And that guy tried to convince me with the passion that I am trying to deliver this message that we need to take Baptist off our church name and stop using the King James Bible. And one of the cards they showed me, an invitation card, had a woman laying on a couch showing all kinds of stuff she shouldn't have been showing. Come to our church. Come to our young couple's class. See, we live in a day when those things are acceptable. If I went and got you a magazine, we get it, it's called Outreach Marketing, and it's for churches to bring people in. You would not believe the things that are advertised in that book. You wouldn't believe it. And that's where churches are today. We don't know it. So what's the answer? Jesus Christ gives us the answer. Look at verse 18. I counsel thee. You think maybe we ought to listen to the counsel of Jesus? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire. This is to the church that doesn't need anything. This is to the church that's rich. He says, buy my gold. 
It's pure. Notice, He is going to be the answer to every problem. Then look at this. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. What is repetition in the Bible? See, here's the bridegroom offering the gown. Then look at what it says. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And now look at this. Here's the great physician fixing the blindness. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. See, God promised us, remember in the parable of the seed, the parable of the mustard seed? The parable just before that was the parable of the sower. The sower sowed the seed, and the seed was the word of God, and the birds came in and took it. And then Jesus Christ identified that the bird was Satan, right? Well, in the next story, he uses the same pictures. You have a mustard seed, and it grows into a tree so that the birds can come and lodge in its branches. So now the church has grown to such an extent, so-called churches, that now we have churches that are full of lost people. So you have saved people and lost people in these churches. You know, Benny Hinn sometimes gives the gospel, right? And if somebody believes the gospel, they hear that, they get saved. Of course, he's getting divorced right now. But that's okay. You know what those people will say? Oh, that's just Satan attacking the man of God. That's what they'll say. His, his meetings aren't going to drop off. Paula White's meetings haven't dropped off since she got divorced. Because she's not really violating anything because she wasn't the husband of one wife in the first place. Do you see the mess that we're in? The convoluted mess that we are in? These are Christians. These are people who have what they call churches. And here's the deal. We don't really care. I'm just doing my own thing. Yeah, they can do that. They're good people in that church. There's good. Our pastor, he just gets a little hard sometimes. He keeps scaring people away. Do you know why we say that? Because we don't know that we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Those of us that are saved, look at what the text says. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. As I read, as I read these, these old books, and I'm introduced to these great Christians of the past, I don't know the last time I've seen people in this room. I'm talking about you guys weeping over sin. We don't weep over our sin. When Spencer Cohn got saved, man... It took him a month. He just walked around just trying to find an answer because he had this heavy weight of his sin 
on his life. He knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that something had to be done to remove the weight of that sin. Duncan Dunbar, he, he was a man from Scotland. He pastored McDougal Street Baptist Church in New York City. He wrestled. He had heard that he was a sinner, but he couldn't get the straight answer as to how to deal with it. For three months, he fought and he wrestled and he wept over his sin. Now, are you glad that you're forgiven? But do you understand that your sin is still an affront to a holy God? We do not weep over sin. So here's our, here is the description. Here's the description of Laodicean 21st century Christianity. We know that we might have some areas, but we're okay. Self-satisfied. Self-satisfied. God says we need to be zealous and repent. That's written to the believers. That's not written to the lost people. When Jesus Christ is standing on the outside of the church, that's churches like ours. I was so thankful last Sunday night to hear your testimonies about you guys giving the gospel. There's no but. There's no gotcha. And that's a huge step forward in our church. Amen? I mean, that's great. We've had visitors that have come from you guys networking in the community. That is awesome. We are, as a church, taking steps forward. Wouldn't you agree with that? But personally and individually, we need to heed Jesus Christ's challenge for us in this age to be zealous and repent. If you're sitting out there right now thinking, I can't think of anything I need to repent of. My goodness. I can't imagine. We have lost genuine holiness in this age. I preached last week, take the next step in love. The only way we're going to continue in this busy age, Daniel described what this age would be like. Just to and fro, to and fro. In this age, if we're genuinely going to love him, serve him, remain pure in our bodies and in this body, we've got to love Him. I want to read one thing to you, and then we're going to close. I found a book written in the 1800s. Listen to what he said. As this church is the last, so it is the worst of the seven. Here is no commendation no encouraging reference even to the past. As far gone as Sardis was, still, things that remain could be mentioned. Not here. Without exception and without qualification, the Laodiceans are pronounced lukewarm. The whole church is lifeless. Their creed is still sound, 
and their modes of worship unexceptionable. What then can be wanting? Heart is wanting. Earnestness is wanting. There's no self-denial that costs anything. No cross-bearing that they feel. No determined witnessing for Christ. No valiant aggression that keeps sinews strained that brings wounds and martyrdom. Genuine spirituality and all religious geniality of soul are gone. The realities of a world to come have sunk into semi-fictions. And the most ominous feature of their state is contentedness with this statue-like religion, tolerably faultless, except that it has no life. Most offensive is this to him who is the faithful and true witness. I don't know about you guys, but as I read through this, this thing was written 150 years ago. He describes a man who is... Here, I'll just read it to you. He's talking about the fact of our salvation, the atonement. And he says, The coming hither of the adorable Son of God, made under the law, maltreated, rejected, yet standing in the sinner's place and suffering for him. Thus... In the greatness of his strength, he makes expiation and propitiation, reconciles heaven and earth, reopens the closed gate to the favor and the paradise of God, and invites all who will come to come and freely receive pardon and the blessedness of heaven. Now what may we, now what may be expected of such ransom sinners? What? but that roused from the torpor of sin, they may remain through life and through eternity awake with intensest gratitude and love. Lukewarm? Shall the man snatched from the surging cauldron of a volcano turn listlessly away from his benefactor as if nothing had happened? Lukewarm? Every drop of my blood thanks you said a condemned criminal to Dr. Doddridge, who had, brought, who had brought a pardon for him. Every drop of my blood thanks you. I will be your servant as long as I live. What shall a justified sinner say to his Savior? Let young plighted hearts grow lukewarm. Let a mother's love grow lukewarm. But not the soul of a sinner saved from wrath and made a joint heir with Christ. Folks, As I read those things, my heart was broken because of my condition. Dear Heavenly Father.